you like behind the scenes tours? I want to take you on one this morning. It's a little anticlimactic, though. I got I to gotta state that right up front. I, I'm just going to give you a little quick behind the scenes tour of how these sermon series kind of get put together, okay? So what happens is we get the leadership team, we just get in the room, and I just ask the question, basically, we pray and say, okay, God, what do you want us to teach to your people during this coming year? And I ask the question, what, what do our people need to know? What's, what's really important that, that, that they know and they get? And what books of the Bible might be helpful to explore as we kind of go through this? And we think about the year and what's going to be preached and this kind of thing. And so it's a team process. It really is. And I take all that information. And as we pray about it and talk it through, and then I go back. And, and I just have fun kind of planning it out and putting series together and, and, and forming the titles of the messages and looking at the, the Bible passages that we'll be using. In fact, we just did this just the other, I don't know, the other week or so ago, and we've got, we've got our messages planned out through the summer of 2020, okay? So we, we know where we're going. Um, but as we, we do all that, and it's exciting, and it's fun, and I get really into it, and, and one of the things that came out last summer was, hey, we, we should do a series on just foundational thinking, where we tackle just the big questions of life, and so that's where this series kind of came out of, uh, this series called Straight Talk, and so we've looked at big questions, how should we think about the world, how should we think about people, and this morning is how we should think about God, and in the planning process, it was really exciting. But then this week, I open up my electronic folder, and I see the title of the message and how we should think about God and the execution of it. I started, well, how am I going to pull that off? I've got, you know, 35, 40 minutes to talk about how we're supposed to think about God. God is inexhaustible. I mean, you can never know all there is to know about God. You can never experience all there is to experience about God. There's always more to learn, always more to discover. He's incomparable. And so this message, it could just go on forever. I mean, it really could. Uh, so this morning, knowing that I cannot fully do it well, and how, how am I going to even begin, what I hope to do, if nothing else, is just to whet your appetite a little bit to want to know God more to want to know God better, just to propel you to, to know better the God who you serve. And so as we launch into this big topic this morning, how should I think about God? Let's read from the prophet Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 31. And the prophet Isaiah, he will help just to guide our thinking this morning, give us some guardrails about how we ought to think about God and what's important in our thinking of God. Isaiah 49 through 31. The prophet writes, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord, he comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the wallow, the, the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or 
with the breath of his hand marked off all the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, if you're reading through the book of Isaiah, which may be the most difficult book in the Bible to read, but if you read through it, you might notice, you might pick up on the fact that Isaiah 40 is the transitional chapter in the book. Uh, some of the most beautiful writing about God and the salvation that he offers to uh, lowly humanity is written in the second half of Isaiah, Isaiah uh, chapters 40 through 66. The, the suffering servant passages, which you may remember about Jesus, by his stripes we are healed. That's all in the second half, the second section 
of Isaiah. This is a difficult book to understand, and one of the reasons why it's difficult to understand is because it seems as if uh, most theologians believe that the, the setting changes, that the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 39, are pre-exilic. Okay, if you remember, it's, it's written in Judah before the Babylonian exile has come in and taken people out of their homeland. And so it's before that. But then chapters 40 through 66 are written either during the exile, most of them towards the end of the exile, and then the last few chapters written post-exile. So you got pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic writings all within one book, and the prophet isn't always in order. Sometimes he jumps around a little bit. So it's a difficult book to understand. But to set this scene for you in this passage in Isaiah 40 for you, what you need to understand is Back in Isaiah 1 through 39, the Israelites, they're afraid of an Assyrian attack. Okay, this is what they're afraid of. They think the Assyrians are going to come in. They're going to wipe them out. This is what makes them nervous. This is what they're afraid of. But then in chapter 40, the scene has changed. They're not worried about an Assyrian attack anymore. They've been carried off into exile. They now live in Babylon. It wasn't the Assyrians who got them. The Assyrian Empire fell. The Babylonians rose up into power, and they carried off Israel. They attacked them, carried them off into Babylon. And so they've been exiled into Babylon. And this is when this part of the scripture is written. And as they're in Babylonian exile, one of the hopes, at least at the beginning, was, God, can we someday go home? I mean, we want to make it back to our homeland. Maybe one day we can get home. And you see, when Babylon conquered a people, they, they were the first nation, the first people group to do this. The, the Greeks would later ad adopt the same military strategy. But their strategy was, you go in. And, then, and you see this in the book of Daniel, and you find the best and the brightest. You find the young men who were strong and handsome and smart, and you found the very best. And you go in and you take these young guys, often teenage boys, you carry them back to Babylon, and then you show off Babylon. And Babylon doesn't look anything like Judah, okay? It doesn't look anything like Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're seeing all kinds of stuff that they have never seen before, okay? Several wonders of the ancient world were located in Babylon, the hanging gardens of Babylon and, and all this. And, they're, and they go in and they brainwash these boys who they, who they take to be their next leaders. They teach them the customs of Babylon. They teach them the language of Babylon. They give them new names. They, they teach them the laws of Babylon, all their Babylonian history books. They're, they're immersing these boys in this stuff. And so these guys come out thoroughly Babylonian, right? They're treated well. They're, they're shown all this stuff and they come out like just thoroughly Babylonian, and then they appoint them to leadership positions so that those who are exiled stop complaining about the conquering enemy who's ripped them from their homeland. They're like, well, okay, if all these guys are for it, maybe this isn't so bad. And so this is how they get people to just assimilate into their culture, and this is what happens here, okay? And then you have to consider what's gone on in Jerusalem, Jerusalem has been ransacked, the people are exiled, murdered, best and the brightest taken away. Jerusalem is left just as a ghetto, 
Okay, the walls are broken down, the gates are off their hinges, the city is raided continually, violence taking place. I mean, if not for God's hand at Jerusalem, Jerusalem just would have been lost to history during this time. This is before Nehemiah, okay? This is before God sells Nehemiah. Okay, you can go back and you can rebuild the walls. This is before all that. I mean, the the people at this time, they're doing what Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah had told them that they would one day do. You remember when Jeremiah said to the captives, hey, you build houses and live in them. You, You raise families and you teach them. You plant a garden and you eat from it. And so this is what the people are doing now in Babylon. They're doing just what the prophet Jeremiah had told them they would one day do. And then this thinking begins to happen. You you start not getting homesick anymore because now all of a sudden Babylon becomes home. Right? You just get comfortable. You've got a house. You've got a routine. You're living life. And so then the prophet comes and he says, you can go home. You can be free. And at first, there's some joy. All right, this is exciting. We can go home. But then the reality of that kind of sets in. And after the reality of that sets in, despair sets in because they don't want to go home. They, they think they are home. And they think, well, why, why do I want to go back there? And all these questions begin to rise up. And they're asking, how are we supposed to do that exactly? What, what money do we have that, that we're going to go back and just kind of rebuild? How are we going to be safe? We don't have any army. We're just Babylonian citizens kind of at this point. How, how is this exactly going to work? What is God going to do about the situation we are in? These are the questions that begin to kind of just scatter in their mind. And so you see the remnant as they come back. It's, it's slow going at first. Do you not know? Have you not heard? You see, sometimes you go to church and you're just like these people who went to synagogue. We can be the same way. We hear the great truths of scripture. We can read our Bible. And then when the rubber meets the road, sometimes we can wonder, well, does God really care? Does does God really see all that's going on? How does this exactly apply to me? How does this exactly work in my life? As I read about a people of long ago who were exiled into battle, I'm not dealing with any of that. How does this work for me? You see, the people, they, they heard the prophets. They heard the promises. They were told about the exile, okay? The prophets had told them. Jeremiah had warned them, hey, because of your sin, you're going to be exiled 70 years. It shouldn't have been a surprise. He gave them warning. They had warnings like repent, turn back to God, or this is where you're headed. And it's where they ended up. Sometimes we think that the, that the promises of God, maybe they matter for other people, but I don't know if they matter for me. I don't know if I really see God fulfilling those. Is he really going to? See, we get so busy. We just live life. We go to work. We got to go to the store. We get groceries. We, we got to get our kids to their sporting events. And we, we got to make room for church Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And we, we, we just got life. And the prophet Isaiah, he makes the promise at the end of this, those who hope in the Lord, you will walk and not grow faint. You will run and not be weary. 
You can take everything that life throws at you and you can, can continue to put one foot in front of the other. You'll never be overwhelmed. You will be strengthened, in fact, if you hope. That's the last promise of this chapter in this context. Did you see that? So how do you get from Babylon, the prophet telling us, hey, now you're able to go back to Jerusalem. And you don't see how in the world that's ever going to happen. Because you know where you're at. And to get back there, it seems like this insurmountable task. Do you not know? Have you not heard? See, the the prophet, he makes this statement over and over again. The God who makes this promise, the God who makes all the promises of Scripture, is the God who made everything. We talked about creation the other week, how we should think about the world, and we recognize, and Isaiah reminds us, that God made it all. And if God has the power to make all of creation, if he can hold the universe in the palm of his hand, if if he can just set the mountains on scales as if they're nothing, if he can collect the dust of the earth and just carry it in a basket, if he has the power to do that, then surely he has the power to handle any situation in your life. Then surely he has the power to get the Israelites back to Jerusalem. See, this is a God who knows every star by name. And he's called them forth into being. And and a God who's so perfect that he didn't lose one star. He created it all just the way he wanted. The very first time he calls them by name, he sets them in the skies. He doesn't lose a single one of the billions and billions and however many stars out there in the universe. To what shall you compare this God? To whom shall you compare this God? This God is not like you and me. You see, if we were to design something, anybody who does anything well, if you sit down and and you say, okay, I'm going to do something, I'm going to try to do it really well, how much stuff just ends up in the wastebasket? How much much practice does it take? I can tell you, just just planning a message every week, I I would hate to know how many times I hit the delete key. It's all the time. It's delete, 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 and then, oh, I'll use that illustration. No, let me wipe that one out. I'll use a different one. I'll I'll go to this passage to help make a point. No, 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 that that one's good. But I've got more stuff in the wastebasket than comes out of my mouth on a Sunday morning. But that's how it is. But God, he doesn't change anything. He does it perfectly the very first time. This God is not like you and me. He got just what he wanted the very first time. And with all those billions and billions of stars, he knows them all. He he never says, you know, I've got so many to remember. There's so many out there. Yeah, I lost track. No, that's that's not God at all. It says that he knows them all by name. That's just the stars. Sometimes we think that God is so big so as to be removed from these little details. Oh, God wouldn't care about that. That's too trivial. That's too insignificant for God. God is so big, he's removed from that. We we got a little uh, NCAA tournament bracket challenge, you know, here in the office, just seeing, okay, who can pick the most winners and that kind of thing. And, and we can, you know, God, God doesn't care about that. That's just trivial. That's kind of a waste of time. It's kind of a fun little thing, but God doesn't care. 
God knows how many hairs are on your head. That seems like a trivial matter to you and me. Have you ever tried to? I mean, for some of you, it may be easier than others, but have you ever tried to count the hairs on your head? God knows the lilies of the field. What you're here today and tomorrow, they're just, they're just cast away, just blown away. But he cares about them. God cares about the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. These little insignificant details of life that we look at and we say, God couldn't possibly care. I mean, what, what value is there in caring for that? He cares more than you and I ever could. Even about these little things. See, we tend to think that God is somehow like us. And we know that we've only got so much capacity in life. And so that we can look at the things that we value and the things that we really put energy towards. And we can think, you know, that, that's it. Is that really a good use of my time? Should I care about watching this TV show? Should I care about this basketball tournament? Should I care about traveling and, and seeing these places? Should I care about this or about that? Is all of this valuable use of my time? Because we know we only have so much capacity in life. And we want to make sure that we are prioritizing the right things and all this. Isaiah wants you to know that God does not have this in common with you. God does not have a capacity issue. God does not have a priority issue. God does not have a sin issue. Don't think of God like you think of yourself. Because God has the power to make creation, all of it, to care for it, to sustain creation. And even more than that, God controls that power. The power does not control him. God controls it all. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Don't you love how Isaiah just says that several times for it to sink in? Have you not heard? Yeah, I think I've heard that before. I think I, I, think I have. Do you not know? Evidently not. Because if we knew this about our God, we would probably act differently. We would probably think differently. We would probably live differently if you really knew that your God was that big and at the same time that he cared that much. You remember that story of Moses when he confronted Pharaoh? Remember that from the book of Exodus? And Moses, he goes up and he stands before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the whole world at that time. He'd raised up the biggest army that had ever been in the whole history of the world at that time. And, and Moses goes up to Pharaoh and he says, hey, God sent me to tell you, let my people go. With just one lift of the finger, just one turn of the eyebrow. Pharaoh could have had Moses executed on the spot. No one would have batted an eye. No one would have thought twice about it. What made Moses do that? It's simple. Moses was more afraid of God than he was of Pharaoh. Moses' God was bigger than Pharaoh. When you read your Bible, what image of God comes to mind? When you pray to God, what image of, mind, of God comes to mind? Do you picture a God so big that the mountains just crumble 
in his presence, a God so big whose voice can just still hurricane winds, a God so big that everything just submits to him, a God who commands angel armies. How big is the God you read about? How big is the God you pray to? What image comes to mind? He's not like you and me. If you just picture another guy sitting across the table, a nice loving grandfather kind of figure, this is not God. God holds it all right in his hand. He's not like you and me. This is what Isaiah says. Who are you going to compare God to? You think you can compare him to you and me and other you No. Your view of God matters. Your view of God matters. Because right thinking produces right living. And how you think about God and your view of God and who he is and what he controls and how powerful he is, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his his omniscience, all of that, those characteristics. How big is your God? Because your view of him matters. Having spent some time as a youth pastor, I know one of the big days in the life of of a parent is when your child gets their driver's license. Okay, and I, I've talked with some parents, and I know it's a big deal because now your child has wheels. Okay, they can, they can go places they before really couldn't go. They, they, they can go there by themselves. And then their friends know that they have wheels and they get to wherever they're wanting. And sometimes friends come along and they're, and they're just uh, bad influences. Can we just say that? Okay, and they're saying, hey, you should go there. We should do this. And all of a sudden, this uh, world of temptation can get a little bigger. Before, the circle might have been a little strong, uh, a little smaller, but now there's wheels, and the moments may come, and the child finds themselves in a quandary because they know that what their friends want them to do is different than what you would want them to do. And so this inward battle takes place. And your child must know, right? This is one of the tests of parenting, I've been told, that in that moment, when that moment of quandary hits, does your child realize that you love them, want the best for them, know better for them than their friends love them and care for them and want what's best for them? In in that moment, when that inward struggle hits, does your child know that they should fear you more than they should fear losing the approval of their friends? Is it so deeply ingrained in you that God loves you, that God has a plan for you? Is it so deeply ingrained in you that you care more about his approval than the approval and the love of the world? Do you have this healthy fear where you don't want to disappoint? You, you, you want to please the God who made you because how you view God in those moments of temptation, in those moments of struggle, it will determine how you live. There's two theological truths about God. Maybe you've heard the terms. They're big words. Transcendence and eminence. And people tend to bounce back and forth between the two. Okay, the transcendence of God is this thinking that God is so big, he's so holy, he's so massive, he's unlike us. 
This is the transcendence of God. And then on the other end, there's the eminence of God. And that is the God is so personal and the God cares so deeply that he even communicates some of his attributes to us. And both of these are true, right? But, but people tend to go to one or the other, to err on one side or the other. So in the eminence of God, you saw shirts. It's, it's kind of past now, but back in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s, like uh, shirts like Jesus is my homeboy. Okay, hey, Jesus just gets me. I mean, if, he, if I sin, it's okay. He just kind of gets me. He understands, all right? And there's some foolishness over there, okay? And then on the other end, we, we tend to think, oh, God is so big and he's so far off. And man, if I even look at somebody the wrong way or if I even think this thought the wrong way, God's going to send down lightning bolts. I mean, he's just going to strike me dead. And so we tend to bounce back and forth between this eminence of God and the transcendence of God. And we tend to err on one side or the other. The challenge is, is to hold both of these truths in a healthy tension and understand both of these are true and they inform how I ought to see God in a, in a healthy, realistic way. Do you not know? Have you not heard? No, evidently not, because we keep bouncing between the two. And we try to use metaphors. God is like. God is like this. God is like that. God is like this. Did you catch what Isaiah said? He said, who are you trying to compare God to anyway? To whom shall you compare God? To what shall you compare God? Now, he brings up the illustration to idols. You want to compare God to these idols that you're making? I mean, to, to something that you look at and you think, okay, this will bring some blessing to my life. This will bring some purpose to my life. This will bring some meaning to my life. They'll add value in some way. Isaiah says, how silly. Come on, those, those idols, they're made in the smelter shop. The, the iron worker, he's got some kind of mold and he just puts the material in there and he forms the idol and then you take it over to the goldsmith and he overlays it with gold and, and then you've got your God. And if you don't have enough money for that, then you go out in the, in, the, in the forest, you chop down a tree and you cut it in half and you save half of it to make a fire and you take the other half to a woodworker and he shapes it into a God. Oh, but you better be sure that they put a stand so your God doesn't fall over. It'd be really bad if you're just sitting down watching TV, you know, and then you hear a thud and you ask your wife, hey, what was that? Did you hear that? Yeah, I think our God fell over. Better have one of the kids run over and set him back up. It'd be really bad if you move around and you drive around and, and you got to take your God with you everywhere you go. He didn't just come, you know. You got to wrap him in bubble wrap and put the seatbelt around him and fasten him in real safe to make sure that your God doesn't fall over, isn't broken in any way. And we can laugh about things like that, but we have our idols too, you know. Isaiah could say the same thing about us. Do, do you not know? Have you not heard? To whom shall you compare God? Will you compare him to sports? Will you compare him to the God of success the way you've defined it? Would you compare him to the TV show that you just can't miss? Could you compare him to this other person? Can you compare him to whatever you put above God? Whatever dominates your time above God, whatever is bigger than God in your life, 
whatever makes ultimate claim on your life and how you live, those are the burdens that you got to carry around. Those are the gods that you're carrying around just like they were. What, what kind of God do you serve? The, the prophets asked that question. What kind of God do you serve? Because Isaiah says if, if you're serving anything else, it's an idol. And if you're comparing God to that, it's just silly. God's not like you and me. He's so big and beyond us. And yet this big God beyond us communicates to us. So maybe you're trapped in your own little Babylon. Carried off by the consequences of your mistakes. Trying to carry around and serve the idols that you've got. Those things that you've created who now lay claim over your life. And you want to do differently. You want to be different. But just like those Israelites now living in Babylon, you don't even see how it's possible. And you've made some kind of home with where you're at, and you've said, you know what, this is okay. And then you come here, or you have a friend, or or somebody tells you, hey, you know, you can be free. It doesn't have to be like that. You can be free. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Our God is the shepherd who carries the sheep in the folds of his garment, who knows each and every one. He knows those who are young and those who need to feed. He, He knows each and every sheep exactly what they need, and he supplies the needs for each and every one. In the New Testament, do you remember Jesus preaching and teaching, and he, and, he, and he makes the statement, I am the good shepherd. You think that was just master preaching? I mean, it was, but he's also beckoning their hearts back to this passage. Remember, in Isaiah, when God said, I am the shepherd who cares for the sheep, and, and so he's calling them to remember this, and Jesus is saying, I, I know the sheep. I know my sheep by name. They, they know my voice. And I I gather them into the folds of my robe and I wrap them around my neck and I watch over them moment by moment, day by day. There is never a moment in life when you are out of his sight or out of his reach or out of his heart. This big God loves and cares for you that much and he has proven himself faithful. And so the question comes, are you? Are we? This is where Isaiah gets. This is where he heads to. And the answer is no. No, we're not. Even yous grow tired and weary. Even the youngest who have the most energy amongst us, they get tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. We are not like God. He is perfect with unending strength. We're desperate sinners who are incredibly weak. That's why we think we're never getting out of Babylon. (laughs) That's why we think I've I've created this mess and I just got to learn to live in it. We're not faithful. 
We're not like God. But the good part is, Isaiah doesn't end it there. He says, what about those who hope in the Lord? He says, they will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That promise is great, but there's a hard part in it, you know. It's a hard promise, and the hard part is that that renewing, as we look through the rest of Scripture, that renewing takes place each and every day. And here's why that's hard. You remember back in the book of Exodus and the manna that was delivered to the Israelites each day? That they're hungry, they're out just toiling around in the wilderness, and as a result of their disobedience, and they're just starving. So, God, can you provide for us? Can, can you do this? And so God provides them manna. This is the food that they eat. But do you remember the rules of manna? You can only get what you need for the day. And that's hard for us. Because we look at life, we say, God, I, I know I need the strength for today, and I know you promised that, but can you go ahead and put some on reserve for me? I'd like to go to the cabinet, to the refrigerator, and just pull some out when I need it. You know, I, I want the strength for tomorrow and the next day and the whole week, and if you don't mind, I'll just take the strength for the rest of my life right now if I could get that. But that's not how it works. In fact, Paul will take it up a notch in Galatians. He says that you have to take each and every step in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, yeah, you will renew your strength, and you can walk and not be weary. You can run and not grow faint. You can do all that. You'll feel like you're riding on eagle's wings, but it's each and every step empowered by the Holy Spirit. That this is the faithfulness that we're called to. Yes, hope in the Lord, but you got to hope and you got to remain faithful and you got to stay there. And if you fall down, you get back up and then you trust them with the next step and the next step and the one after that. And you fall down and you trip again and you get back up and you trust him again. And you continue to take that next step. Some of you are facing really hard, difficult things in life. I know it. Doctor's visits, health issues, you've got relational stress, just stuff in life. You're trying to get your life back together, and you're kind of in Babylon, and you can't quite see your way out. God will give you the strength you need for the next step, and then he'll give you the strength you need for the step after that, and the step after that and the one after that, as you continually rest in him. See, you surrender daily for renewed strength. Surrender daily for renewed strength. He didn't give it to you all at once. It's a life of faithfulness. And do you see in this passage as, as we go through, and you, you have these allusions in the, in the New Testament to, to uh, in this section, God says, hey, I am the shepherd, and then we talked about Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And then here, the, the, the steps empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Paul kind of picking up on that same theme in Galatians 5. We also recognize that God is three in one. 
God is this perfect trinity. God the Father is not the Son, and he's not the Spirit, but he is God. God the Son is not the Father, and he's not the Spirit, but he is God. God the Spirit is not the Father, and is not the Son, but he is God, and they are one. And how do you wrap your mind around that? See, the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. You you never wake up and say, I think I figured God out. I got him down. If you could, that would be extremely unnerving. Because if you had all that knowledge, then you would be God. You know, do you realize that? If you could figure out all there is to know about God, if you could know the omniscient God of the universe, the God so big who holds the dust and the grain of his, in, in the palm of his hand, all this, that if, if you could figure him out perfectly, completely, then you'd be God. You see, our job is to take the next step and then the next step And then the next step, it's a life of faithfulness, a life of discovery, a life of promise, a life of hope, a life of purpose. And hopefully this morning is just the start, just the prompt to get you to take another step, to know God just a little bit better, to understand him just a little bit deeper. And then you'll be encouraged to take the step after that and the one after that. And before long, you'll feel like running, feel like running through the fields of grace and then even soaring on on the the wings of eagles because you continue to take the next step of knowing him better, serving him more, of being faithful. See, we all have a next step to take. Heavenly Father, As we endeavor to know you more, this inexhaustible God, it's not of, out of arrogance or pride, it's, it's out of humility. It's out of a recognition that we are not like you. But God, we desire to represent you well as you've called us to. And God, sometimes when we look at the mess in our own lives and we think, is there any way out? We remember a God so big, so powerful, who causes the the leaders to rise and fall, and he gives them power, and he takes it away. A God who can work through any situation in our life. Nothing is too big for you when things often seem too big for us. So God, help us to trust in you. And tell others about this wonderful God, you, who we serve. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.